Hello and welcome to the Friday, February 28th, 2020 edition of On Iowa Politics. If our voices sound muffled, just blame it on these damn COVID-19 masks. <laughs> this week, South Carolina and Super Tuesday, the U.S. Senate race, and Invest in Iowa. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Aaron Murphy, Lee Newspaper State House Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. <laughs> and Gazette columnist Todd <laughs> Gorman. Good morning, Todd. Don't cough in my direction. Yeah, I, I was going to cough, but I decided not to. Good morning. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. Just out of habit, Aaron, uh, I have to ask whether there are any caucus updates. Is Bill Weld asking the Republican yeah, Party yeah. for a recount? Or maybe the president's asking for a recount. What's new? <laughs> oh, God help us. Um, there actually is news. Uh, um, in, in true Midwest fashion, I say bless their hearts. We finally got the final uh, caucus results last night. So they finished the recount. Um, and uh, Pete Buttigieg held on to his um ridiculously slim margin over bernie sanders um so technically pete Buttigieg is the winner of the 2020 iowa caucuses it, it doesn't feel that way like it normally would between how long it took to get here um between the re-canvas and the recount um and how close it is and also the fact that there's still a lot of results a little a lot of precinct results that are still contested or in doubt um, the campaigns were able to flag precincts that they felt were erroneous, um, but obviously they only flagged ones where they thought uh, <clears throat> it would help them. Media um, entities and, and other um, you know caucus observers have um, highlighted what they are uh, what they believe are errors in other precincts, and those weren't addressed because none of the campaigns flagged them. Um, the Associated Press said it's not going to declare a winner because the race was so close and because of those unknown, um, you know, the questions about those other results. So it, it, it doesn't feel like a, a caucus win normally does. Um, I, I, I think at the end of the day, Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders both were able to walk away from Iowa claiming victory and that kind of, you know, that's about the impact of Iowa anyways, right? You know, it's it's, it's, it's not even necessarily about uh, the result is just about doing well relative to expectations, and, and both of those campaigns can were able to walk away from claiming from Iowa claiming victory. These final results really don't change that for either of those campaigns. They both did well. Um, uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign is noting that highlighting that they won the first preference total. So, so it really was a win for both of them in that respect. Uh, but the, the biggest win is for us as reporters because uh, the results are finally final and uh, we can move on um, until they conduct the investigation into what went wrong with the app and then we get back into it all over again. I, I kind of chuckled at the uh, AP citing irregularities considering that the caucus itself is sort of an irregularity. <laughs> I mean, it's just not. It's a, pro <laughs> it's a process that has always yielded sort of odd yeah. Things, you know, it's not like a primary, but, and I don't, you know, 
I think a lot, some of the things that have happened a lot of times in the past were simply highlighted under the glare of all these other problems this year. And so, so it'll be the irregular, never settled caucus, <laughs> I, I guess. I read this on social media last night, so I'm not claiming, I, I don't make no claim what, to the veracity of it, but I saw that the Sanders campaign is uh, like asking the DNC to step in because they feel like the national delegate were wrongly assigned in this final recount. So maybe it's not over. I, I don't know. Um, but nevertheless, the campaign goes forward to uh, South Carolina and then on to Super Tuesday, 14 states. Um, this week, of course, all eyes are on South Carolina where Democrats will be having their presidential primary Saturday. Depending on when you listen to this podcast, you may know the results. Don't spoil it for us. Thanks. Uh, former Vice President Joe Biden was calling South Carolina his firewall long before he bombed in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. Uh, rather than worry about a fire, he might want to try and build a fire under his campaign. It seems a little... Biden had a little fire in his belly at the debate earlier this week, Todd. Um, is it too little too late for the former vice president? Well, I, you know, I think the polls show that he's, you know, he's supposed to do well in South Carolina. There were polls out yesterday that showed him with a, a fairly large lead. Uh, of course, you know, anything, anything can happen. And we've seen polling that wasn't so hot in the past. Uh, but I, I think if he just would win South Carolina, that would probably at least give him a, a, a you know, bring him back into the conversation because for a few weeks after Iowa and New Hampshire it was sort of like well a lot of people were writing his political obituary again and and you know and, and, and mentioning that he's run three times and never won a primary or a caucus so I, I think as, as we as we go forward I, of course what a lot of what you know a lot of establishment sort of moderate Democrats are hoping is that someone emerges to be the, the kind of the the alternative to Bernie Sanders and I suppose if he wins, ends up winning big in South Carolina, he w could then at least make a renewed argument that that should be him, whether whether that happens or not. If 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 he, if he finishes, if it's disappointingly close for him, or he actually loses South Carolina, then it's going to be one of the other candidates, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, perhaps that could make that argument. Mike Bloomberg, uh, Amy Klobuchar has sort of surged and now kind of faded out of the scene. She's not polling terribly well in some of these. But later states, so, uh, but yeah, I think I think Biden may may win and and you know, kind of inject himself into that conversation of who represents the the moderate so-called moderate you know section of the party. And Amy, uh, what about the candidates not named Sanders or Bloomberg or maybe Biden? Uh, do the campaign trails dead end on Super Tuesday for Klobuchar, Steyer? Edge, Warren. You would think that at least end for Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> Poor Tulsi's hanging on. Just, She's I still mean, in. <laughs> I don't I mean, honestly, now before South Carolina is really the time for these moderates to swallow their collective pride and rally around someone so moderate voters coalesce around the one not named Sanders, you know, but they won't, of course, because Biden and Bloomberg are happy to take it to the convention, and the rest think it's just terribly unfair that they have to give up their Clomentum or Dyer streak or Buddha Gaines 
or Warren Wave. I don't know. Yeah, but I think probably a couple, <laughs> you know, maybe Steyer or Warren will drop if they don't perform on Super Tuesday. But by that point, it'll be Sanders' race to lose. And he doesn't look like he's going to lose it. I mean, he's... No, he's still the, right. he's still the favorite, clearly. Yeah, and he seems to... Yeah. He, he looks unbeatable at this point, but... Uh, uh, there, there is more and more talk. It seems like uh, among Democrats that how do we stop Bernie Sanders? And uh, you, you know, you're sort of hearing from people like Nancy Pelosi and, and some of the people uh, running House races that Bernie Sanders could be a problem if he's at the top of the ticket. Um, you know, I don't know if Michael Bloomberg is a better top of the ticket. Uh, for people in so so-called swing districts like Iowa's first and second and and third, other than the fact that he he'll write checks uh, that Bernie won't write, but um, you know I, I don't know which one is better for the top of the ticket in that regard. Well, it's, I could I mean I think you could see, you know I I don't know that either Cindy Axney or Abby Finkenauer would would benefit from Bernie Sanders coming into campaign for them. I mean, things change. The, you know, yeah. we saw last time, you know, four years ago, Republicans were reluctant to support Trump, and then they kind of went all in, and it, it worked out for them. So, I, you know, you, you never know. But at this point, all things remaining constant. I, 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 especially Abby Finkenauer, I just can't see, you know, a, Bernie, a big Bernie rally doing her much good. Yeah, and, and I don't know, you know, looking at Iowa – even in the third district, it, it'd help in Polk County, but Axney pretty much has Polk County, you know, right. uh, locked up. I don't know that it helps in Southwest Iowa to have Bernie Bernie Sanders come in. Um, but given our polarization, uh, you know, if he's our guy, he's our guy, and yeah. we're all in. So uh, that that will be an interesting storyline to watch um, as as we go forward which uh, will also be part of the storyline in the U.S. Senate race in Iowa, no doubt, um, where Iowa Democrats have hardly had time to recover from their caucuses, catch their breath, and the U.S. Senate race is starting to heat up. There's a four- or five-way primary for the Democratic nomination uh, to go up against Senator Joni Ernst. Aaron, uh, you've been taking an early look at the race. First, remind us of who, who's in this race. Yeah, so we have, uh, I, I, I think like you, you said, it is perfect four or five because we have four folks who are, are definitely running and, and, um, and a fifth that um, uh, has declared, uh, just haven't seen a lot of action from. Um, the candidates are Teresa Greenfield, uh, um, a Des Moines businesswoman, and um, if the name sounds familiar, she ran early in the um, third district primary a couple of years ago, but had to drop out when it turned out her campaign staff um, uh, faked some signatures on her nominating petition. Um, uh, so she's running in this primary. Uh, Kimberly Graham um, from Indianola, um, and she's kind of been an, uh, appealing to the Bernie Sanders wing of the party a little bit. She, she was at a lot of Bernie events during the caucus season. Eddie Morrow, <clears throat> Uh, Des Moines attorney um, is in the race as well, and um, Michael Franken, um, and forgive me the name of his town that he's from. He's from Western Iowa. Uh, if anyone remembers, jump in on me here. But he's a um, military area. That, that's what I thought too, but I couldn't remember for sure. Thank you, Amy. Um, um, military veteran. Um, uh, um, and uh, from Western Iowa is in the race as well. And then the last one 
is uh, Cal Woods, and he's the one who has been a, a little bit quieter. Um, hasn't filed any fundraising reports or anything um, like that, but but he has he has announced anyways. So um, uh, those are those are the ones in the primary um, working on uh, trying to be the nominee to take on Joni Ernst this fall. And just to head off any cease and desist order letters from uh, either the Iowa Bar Association or the Morrow campaign, he's not an attorney, but he is a, a businessman uh, from Des Moines. So, I'm sorry, that's right. <laughs> relax, that's folks, right. relax. We're, we're not trying to impugn his <laughs> reputation or the bar reputation. But uh, <laughs> so, what's this race looking like, Aaron? I mean, is there a favorite? Is this going to be competitive? What's the sense at this point? Yeah, well, we don't have any polling yet, so it's tough to tell, tell from that point. So what we the, the the metrics we can use are, are fundraising and um, and endorsements, and, and from from that standpoint, Teresa Greenfield seems to be the strongest early on. Now that doesn't mean a direct correlation to once we get to the grassroots and, and voters and, and actual support. Uh, that remains to be seen. But for, for for the like I said, for the metrics that we do know and can use. Uh, Teresa Greenfield has done a good job, has been a strong fundraiser, and uh, she's racked up a lot of early endorsements, um, including from uh, the national party structure has has has, has been backing her. Um, so from that standpoint, she would have to be uh, considered the favorite. Um, but but the other candidates, especially Graham and and uh, Morrow and Franken have have been out there and and working and and trying to get their message out and 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 been talking to. Iowa Democrats, and so so it will be interesting as this thing uh, really starts to pick up and gain attention now that we got the caucuses finally in the rearview mirror, and, and people start paying more attention to this race. It, it will be interesting to see um, how 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 Iowa Democrats uh, view this race. The primary is coming up in June, so there are a few months uh, for these folks to get out and get around the state and introduce themselves and, and make their case. Amy, I, I'm wondering, are, are you seeing any activity from these folks, and do you get any sense that rank-and-file Democrats are taking off their Biden, uh, Buttigieg, Sanders, Warren, Clementum, whatever, stickers and putting on a Senate sticker? Uh, I mean, a little bit. Yeah, you know, I've seen my first get-to-know-me ad for Teresa Greenfield, um, who Aaron pointed out is the current favorite with the you know largest war chest. Um, I've talked a few times with Mike Franken, who has been making the rounds a bit, and I have an interview with Cal Woods uh, right after we record this podcast today. So, I mean, the candidates are definitely trying to start gaining back the attention of caucus-weary Democrats and, and really make the case against another term for Joni Ernst. But, yeah, I just really haven't seen any local endorsements quite yet. I expect probably after the filing deadline in mid-March, you might see those ramping up. Maybe after county conventions, too, in, in which I think is yeah. mid to late March. We may see more of that. I, I guess that would make sense. Um, and, and, Todd, of course, the winner of this contest gets to face off against Joni Ernst. Is that a prize anyone wants? Yeah, apparently. they're. I mean, they are running, but... She's going to be tough to beat, I think. Uh, she's not invincible by any means. I, I think there are arguments you can make against her re-election. It's just, you know, how are these, the Democratic candidates, whoever's the nominee, going to going to make that, and is anyone going to listen? I mean, so far, uh, it, you know, it's, it's tough to say this is an exciting field of Democratic candidates. We'll see, you know, more of them going forward, and that may change. One of them may emerge as a compelling choice, but... 
at this point it's sort of a cast of folks that are aren't very well known outside of you know the circles of folks like us that pay attention to this kind of stuff and then you've got Joni Ernst who's very well known and and you know depending on the the polls you show that you see I mean her I think there have been polls that show her approval not fantastic but I think you know in an election campaign that doesn't always matter if, if she's seen as the better choice and, and, and a more compelling uh, candidate than, than the Democrats will be able to, to muster. So I think she's got a big advantage. Uh, I don't know how this is rated. I'm assuming it's it's probably, I don't know if it's, it's not safe R, but it's probably leaning as far as you can lean <laughs> without being safe, maybe. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's going to be, this is going to be a tough pickup. And, you know, whoever the nominee is, is going to have to show some progress early because if, if they don't make progress early and cut into Ernst's lead, or at least you know deliver some blows that seem to that seem to kind of slow the the, the incumbent's momentum, you're going to see the the money go elsewhere, and and the the Senate race might become sort of a, in the shadow of the good congressional races that we're going to have. Would that be uh, Joni Mentum, Joe Mentum, Ernst, <laughs> Ernst Mentum, Ernst. <laughs> Squeal momentum. Squeal momentum. There we go. All right. Democratic Senate hopefuls aren't the only ones campaigning in Iowa. Governor Kim Reynolds is on the road to drum up support for her Invest in Iowa plan that would fund the Natural Resources Trust Fund, which includes money for water quality and outdoor recreation, support mental health systems, and insert trumpet fanfare here. Lower taxes. Of course, it's built on a one-cent sales tax increase, uh, which would raise about $540 million. Todd, uh, can the governor twist enough Republicans' arms hard enough to get the votes she needs to raise the sales tax? Well, she hasn't exactly been a, a major league arm twister in the past. She's sort of put her plans out there, and if the legislature rejects them, she sort of says, well, we'll, we'll try again next year. And she hasn't really been willing yet to issue ultimatums and say, I'm going to veto budget bills and keep you here till July if you don't you know, enact my priorities. She hasn't sort of been that governor yet. Maybe she she won't be. I mean, you, you know, with the legislature in the control of her party, that's not supposed to happen, but it, it does sometimes. With this, it may happen because you're seeing a lot of news stories. You know, we had a story over the weekend in the Gazette. Uh, I, I've been watching the, the local newspapers and their, you know, sort of the weekend legislative forums and what folks have to say about this bill. And there's been a great deal of of low enthusiasm, lack of lack of excitement, and a lot of people saying this may be too complicated for us to do this year, which is unfortunate in a way because you know in 2010 we just we voted for this trust fund. It was going to provide money to these new money to these programs, uh, natural resources, outdoor recreation. It was kind of simple, and now it's this very complicated Rube Goldberg bill where. Yeah, some new money's going to recreation, but a lot of it's money that we're already spending. And by the way, there's an income tax cut. And oh, yeah, we're going to take over mental health spending to cut property taxes. Maybe property taxes will be cut if counties decide to cut property taxes. Maybe not. Uh, and everybody's sort of tangled up in all these details. And instead of having sort of a grand bargain, you've got a bill with something for every everyone to not like, <laughs> which is always a problem. That said, <laughs> it's her top priority. Weird things happen as we get toward the end of the session. Maybe something falls together and, and the governor gets this bill, but 
right now it's uh, it's probably less than 50% chance that that's, that's going to happen. The argument the, the governor is making, and she made here in Cedar Rapids earlier to, this morning, uh, is that for 10 years nothing has happened. There hasn't been any money going into this Natural Resources Trust Fund. And here's an opportunity by striking a, a grand bargain, as you said, to fill that trust fund uh, and take care of some other priorities like mental health and lowering taxes is always a priority for Republicans, it seems like. Uh, the, the argument that or the pushback she's getting is that it seems like there should be should be more money going into the trust fund than she's putting in. She's tinkered yeah. with the formula. She's moving using some existing funding uh, to to fill that fund. Um, so, like you say, there there even people who like the outdoor recreation trust fund don't necessarily like the formula that she's using. So, uh, she's really pushing the idea that it's going to take people uh, telling their legislators to vote for this that it's going to be grassroots bottom up support for this if it's going to get done um and still i mean recognizing that it's a heavy lift to get legislators to vote for a tax increase um so aaron is this going to play out like the gas tax hike a few years ago when legislative leaders basically agreed to whatever the opposite of a mutual assured destruction pact would be uh, by saying that uh, a majority of members of both parties would vote for the bill to get it over the, the finish line. Is, is it going to take some sort of a, uh, agreement like that to pass this Invest in Iowa fund? Yeah, and, and we've asked uh, Republican leaders that and, and haven't gotten the most clear answer in the world yet. Um, but, but you would almost have to think um, any time – there is going to be a vote for a tax increase, um, even if it, you know, Republicans insist that, uh, especially in the Senate, they insist that they won't support this unless the overall plan is a net tax reduction. Even if they get that, you know, even if they can show on paper that this will be a net reduction with everything that they do, there still will be a vote in there, whether it's in one big bill or, or as an individual bill separately for a tax increase. Um, and you would think that they would want some political cover uh, uh, for such a vote, meaning um, you know a, a majority of Democrats supporting it too, which is what they, which is the agreement they made in the in the um, uh, the gas tax increase that you mentioned from a few years ago. That uh, the, the the agreement that the two parties reached, and this was back when uh, there was split control of the of the Iowa Capitol. So the Democrats controlled the Senate and, and the I and the Republicans, the house at the time, the agreement was that within each chamber of um, at least half of each caucus had had to have, had to be a yes vote. So, so neither side could go out on the campaign trail and pin a tax increase on the other. Um, so to circle back again, you would think that Republicans would want a similar political cover for something like this if they're going to vote to increase the sales tax, even knowing that they're also voting separately for a, a, um, an in, income tax reduction. Um, we, the Republican leaders haven't said that flat out yet, but it's, it's just hard to imagine them taking that vote um, and, and letting that all be put on their party. Although with uh... – Republican control of both chambers, Democrats might be less inclined 
to that sort of agreement, I would guess. That's uh, true. You know, say, yep. you, know, you know, your governor wants this. You, you put the votes up. Even though, uh, I mean, most Democrats I've talked to or heard from seem to be, seem inclined to support the Invest in Iowa Act, um, even though it's the governor's, a uh, Republican governor proposing it. So that it might be harder to strike that sort of a bargain. Yeah, I mean, there'll be some Democrats who vote for it, although there are a lot of Democrats that look at the tax shift and they say, right. well, you're raising the sales tax, which hits low-income people harder, usually, uh, and you're doing that to uh, you know, cut income taxes and cut potentially property taxes, which would tend to be benefit wealthier folks more. And, oh, and you're raising the sales tax to clean up water, even though most of the farm inputs, including fertilizer, aren't subject to sales tax. So <laughs> there are a lot of folks on that side of the spectrum that are uh, like, this isn't what people voted for, right. and it also makes the tax system less progressive. So that's – but I think th – I still think you would probably find some Democrats who would, in the end, put up a yes vote for this. I, I, the question is how many. I don't think it would ever get to half of their caucus, like the gas tax. Without some sort of a deal. Yeah, know. without yeah. some major change in the legislation. Right. Yeah, it, they probably would not provide the 51st vote. No. Yeah. So, well, if they do, we'll talk about that on a future edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope it's been worth your time today. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. Send fan mail to oniowapolitics at gmail.com. And you can find us every week on the home pages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Johnny on Point will take us out. If you know a band or talented Iowa musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and remember to follow us on Twitter and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. For Aaron, Amy, Todd, and our producer Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.